actually a third of Foxtel Makers got lectures um, on our knowledge of the eternal world. This time it's locating ourselves in the, in the world. Okay. I talked at the end last time about uh, John uh, Perry's uh, approach to the problem about Mary. He argued that we need to recognize a kind of representational content, which he called reflexive content, that essentially involves the subject who is doing the representing and her relation to what's being represented. And he argued that uh, if we distinguish this kind of content from subject matter content, uh, this will dissolve the puzzle about Mary. So I um, am sympathetic uh, to the idea that it will at least help to clarify the puzzle if we can be explicit about the role of the subject's perspective uh, in the representation of content and the relationship between a perspective and a conception of the so-called absolute conception or conception of the world as it is in itself. But it remains unclear, to me at least, exactly what reflexive content is. So my aim today is to sketch an account of self-locating belief that I hope will begin to make sense of a notion of informational content that's not detachable from the situation of the subject or from the context in which the content is ascribed. Now, Perry's, as we talked uh, talk last time, Perry's discussion made use of a model of, uh, of a representational mechanism, a little sort of metaphor of, of uh, uh, plugs and sockets and so on, uh, a model of a form that internal representation might take. And what uh, the kind of account I want to uh, develop will focus on the informational content of a representation and try to be as neutral as possible about the nature of the means by which content is stored or expressed. So with, with both ordinary beliefs about the objective world and self-locating beliefs, um, my concern is going to be with truth conditions, with what conditions a world must meet in order for a believer to have a correct conception of the world or a correct conception of one's place in the world, subject's place in the world. And in keeping with our general anti-Cartesian um, strategy, the representation um, of the content of a subject's belief is, is to be characterized from an external perspective. And the idea is here that the theorist or the attributor of belief, the person describing uh, the perspective of another, describes the world as the subject takes it to be, but in doing so uses his own resources. That is, uh, one the theorist describes uh, a possible world or a kind of possible world uh, by placing things, events, properties, and relations that he finds in the actual world as he sees it um, to, to, uh, to describe from that point of view, what the world is like according to, to, uh, to the subject. Now, start, starting where we get to self-locating belief with sort of classical possible worlds representation of a state of belief or knowledge, it's a very idealized uh, representation, but the idealizations won't 
avoid or evade the particular problems that we want to focus on here. But the rough intuitive idea is one asks, one doesn't focus on in trying to say what someone believes or get a sort of a kind of way of thinking about what someone believes. Don't start by looking at the sentences the person would affirm. Start by trying to say, again, using one's own resources, what the world is like according to that person. What kind of world is such that if that person were to find that that were to come to learn that that's the way the world was, they wouldn't be surprised. It would fit with their conception. So formally, in that kind of theory, one represents sort of the hintica, going back first to pioneer sort of formal models of knowledge of this kind. One represents a state of belief or knowledge by a set of possible worlds, the doxastically or epistemically accessible worlds, those compatible with the subject's belief or knowledge. So we start with that kind of classical conception and then consider how one might generalize or modify it to take account of essentially indexical or self-locating belief and knowledge. Now, if our question is exactly when are self-locating statements and beliefs true, then the answer is pretty clear and unproblematic. That is, a statement of the form IMF will be true when said or thought by X, if and only if X is F. So if David Kaplan says, quote, my pants are on fire, unquote, what he says is true, if and only if David Kaplan's pants are on fire at the time at which he says it. But this answer, this sort of simple answer, uncontroversial answer, does not tell us what the contents of the statements are, what information they convey, what belief they express, what kind of fact, if any, they state. So that's the question we want to try to get at. What's the content of a self-locating belief? Or how might one represent the content of a, in terms of the content of the state of belief of a person? So one influential answer to this question in the possible world's tradition is defended by David Lewis is this. If the contents of ordinary beliefs about objective facts can be represented by sets of possible worlds, then the contents of self-locating beliefs can be represented by sets of centered possible worlds, where a centered possible world is a pair consisting of a world plus a center, which is a designated time and person. So you find a subject in the world and a time, and you sort of designate that, and then that sort of abstract object is in a centered possible world. Since, quote, I am sad is true if and only if it is said or thought by a sad person, its content will be represented by the set of centered possible worlds that have a sad person as their designated center, a person who's sad in that world as their designated center. The content of, quote, the meeting is about to start, unquote, will be the set of centered worlds at which the meeting in question takes place soon after the time that is designated as the center. Now this is an elegant modification of the standard account because it's a generalization. 
That is, as Lewis observed in, in developing this kind of date, what he called de se belief, ordinary beliefs about the objective world can be represented, can be seen as a special case of self-locating beliefs. Beliefs where the center is irrelevant. So beliefs that might be expressed with an eternal sentence, such as my belief that pigs can't fly, have as their content the set of centered worlds, CW, such that it is false that pigs can fly in W. So you just have a kind of a vacuous C in, in there that doesn't do any work. Okay, so that's the, the general picture. Now I want to sort of um, give some little pictures of little toy possible worlds uh, to sort of uh, sketch the, start with sort of the classical account and then move to the centered world kind of account. Just kind of get a picture uh, to, to go with, with the formal, uh, formal theory. Okay, this is a possible world. There's two guys in it. They're both happy. And this is another one where one guy is happy and the other one is sad. And a third uh, possible world where we have the same two guys, um, or two guys anyway, both sad. So then if we want to represent the, the statement... Uh, someone is sad, that sort of non-self-locating but objective proposition, someone is sad, then that's just the set of possible worlds such that one of the two guys, at least one of the two guys, is, is sad. So that's the, the sort of uh, minimal uh, little model of the classical um, case. Now, we now want to have centered worlds, so what we do is we take the same worlds and we light up one of these guys in each world, as the center, ignoring time uh, for the moment. Uh, and since we had three possible worlds with two people in each in our toy model, we're going to have six uh, centered worlds, the same, the three worlds with the centers in the, in the two alternative places. Then, if we wanted to represent the statement, the indexical statement, I am sad, we would simply uh, block off the um, the possible, the, the possible, the centered possible worlds, which have a sad uh, guy uh, at the center. So, uh, excluding um, in the middle case uh, one of the uh, one of the centered worlds, and including the other one, which are the, which are the centers centers located at the same world. Okay, so that's the that's the sort of bare bones of the of the Lewis. Um, strategy. Now, the Lewis account modifies the standard possible worlds account by replacing possible worlds throughout with centered possible worlds. A belief state, on Lewis's view, is represented by a set of centered worlds. And the contents ascribed when one ascribes a belief are represented by sets of centered worlds, just as the contents in the classical theory are represented by sets of worlds, the worlds in which the proposition in question is true. Now, there are a number of, of, of problems, or at least um, anomalous features, of this account of self-locating content. So we're going to again, focusing on the notion of what's called the content of the belief. So first, this account identifies contents that ought to be distinguished. So what I believe when I believe I was born in New Jersey is something about myself, something different from what my fellow New Jersey natives believe about themselves. What I tell the waiter when I tell him that I will have the mushroom souffle 
is different from what you tell the waiter if you decide to have the same thing. But on the centered world's account, our respective beliefs and statements have the same content. Now, there are different ways of classifying states of belief, and there's nothing wrong with classifying them, uh, categorizing belief states so that self-ascriptions of the same property count as the same in at least one sense. But if one thinks of this as classifying by content, then the result is that the content of beliefs are not things that are true or false in themselves, but only true or false relative to a speaker or thinker at a time. Now, it's natural to allow that sentence or utterance types might be true or false, if one wants to think of them as true or false, only relative to a situation in which they're used. But this is natural because it's natural to say that the content expressed by a sentence or utterance type may be different from context to context. It seems less natural to say that the content of a belief might be true for one believer and false for another. But this is a kind of minor uh, problem compared with the second. Uh, more important point is that Lewis's account distinguishes contents that ought to be identified. So if Rudolf Lingens tells you that he is sad or that he is Rudolf Lingens and you understand and accept what he says, then it seems that the information you acquire is the same information that he imparted. But you do not, of course, thereby self-ascribe the property of being sad or being Rudolf Lingens. Ascribe it to yourself. So this problem with the account, the problem that uh, we don't get a sort of common content um, uh, for uh, things uh, expressed from a different perspective, um, is more significant uh, since we need to be able to compare and contrast the beliefs of different um, different believers, um, different subjects, in order uh, to uh, give an account of um, communication. That is, we need to be able to represent agreement and disagreement in order to understand what, what people know and, and in order to understand what goes on in a communicative situation. So the Lewis-centered world account is, is in a sense, solipsistic. That is, it provides uh, no account um, of, uh, of, of content um, that, that allows it to be transmitted in a normal way. Um, um, and um, the fact that contents of belief are tied to a time, the time of the center, also makes it much more difficult to understand the way beliefs of a single believer change over time. The account, uh, and this is a, a problem that's become familiar in the sort of self-locating uh, belief uh, um, uh, framework, is how to understand the dynamics of belief, how to understand persistence and change of belief. So the Lewis account provides no distinction between a change in belief that is a change of mind and a change that results from a change in the facts. So I may stop believing that it's raining because it stops raining or because I learned that I was mistaken. In the former case, where I stop believing that it's raining because it stops raining, it may be that I still believe, in a sense, what I believed before, namely that it was raining then. And when once an account of the content of tensed beliefs, 
that allows uh, for this. And this, in general, is the sort of main aim of what I want to do in modifying the Lewis account, is to give an account which allows for the calibration of beliefs, allows the sort of the way in which to, to, uh, uh, to understand uh, the way in which one person's self-locating beliefs relate to another person's self-locating belief. Now, there's a misleading picture that sometimes accompanies the Lewis account of self-location, or they say belief in his terms. Belief about what is possible, this is the misleading picture, belief about what possible world you are in is like belief about what country you're in, while belief about where in the world you are is like a more specific belief about where in the country you are, what village, what street corner. But ordinary belief, this is a sort of false uh, analogy, ordinary belief about where you are in the world is always, even relatively specific, is always also belief about what possible world you are in, what possible or what possible state of the world is actual. If I'm not sure as I drive along the highway toward New York whether I'm still in Massachusetts, then I'm not sure whether I'm in a possible world in which this stretch of highway is located in Massachusetts. If I know that the meeting starts at noon, but not whether it starts now, then I don't know whether or not I am in a world in which I'm sitting in my office thinking this thought at noon, or in a world where I'm thinking it at some earlier time. Now, the misleading picture is encouraged by the imagery of Lewis's modal realism, according to which possible worlds are literally places where people are located. But, um, and many people who are sort of in, uh, affected by this picture would reject the Lewis modal realism. But um, I think the, um, the misleading picture is also encouraged by the character of some of the examples used to make the point that belief can be essentially indexical. So often to nail the point down of one of these sort of examples to make the point that essentially indexical belief is not reducible to objective belief, to nail the point down, uh, the example used will be a case where there are two scenarios taking place within the actual world, within the same possible world. Uh, two scenarios involving different people, places, or times. Two amnesiacs, say, lost in different libraries. Uh, two omniscient gods, in Lewis's uh, example. Uh, the people in the scenarios in this kind of example know in each situation all of the relevant objective facts about the situation, but remain ignorant of which of the actual situations they are in fact in, what time it is, whether they, so there's, there's something going on at two different times, exactly the same thing, and the person doesn't know which of those actual situations he's in even though he knows all the facts that there exist, the situations of the two kinds. Um, so this is what encourages the idea that they know what world they're in, but not where they are in it. But a story that meets this um, condition needs to be highly contrived if it's to work. The internal mental perspectives of the two subjects, or of the subjects at the two times, need to be indiscernible from each other in order for the subject to be ignorant uh, of, of which one he's in. But it's important to, to notice that this science fiction element uh, that's often present in the indexical belief stories um, 
is entirely unnecessary to make the point that self-locating information is irreducible to information about the objective world. So even if no one else in the actual world is, was, or will be experiencing the thoughts and feelings that you are now experiencing, and even if the objective description of the world includes a description of which people are having which thoughts and feelings at which times, you still cannot infer from the objective description where you are in the world. You will know where you are in the world in that case, but not by inference uh, from an objective description. Um, uh, you need to put the objective information that you have together with your knowledge that it is you who are having the experiences you're having and the thoughts and feelings that you're having and that it's now that you're having them. Now, in the modification of the Lewis account that I want to uh, sketch, uh, it will be assumed that ignorance of where one is in the world will always also be ignorance of what world one is in. Even if an experience just like this one is taking place at two times in the actual world, and I don't know which of the two times is now, the world in which this token experience is taking place at a different time is a different, uncentered world. Okay, to set up the modified account that I think gives a more adequate representation of self-locating content, let me start by distinguishing two questions. First, what is the content ascribed when one ascribes to someone a self-locating belief? In some ways, this is a harder question. Then the second, which is, how should a person's state of belief as a whole be represented so that it includes his or her self-locating beliefs, as well as beliefs about the objective world? In the classical uh, formal semantic models that ignore the phenomenon of self-location, a belief state was represented by a set of a belief state, that is, something represented, what's the total state of belief of a person, is represented by a set of possible worlds, the worlds compatible with that person's uh, beliefs. It's a sort of holistic or global representation. The content ascribed was also represented by a set of possible worlds, same kind of object. So X believes that phi, if and only if the set of worlds representing X's belief state is included in the set of worlds in which the proposition that phi is true. So the Lewis account that I've sketched tells a parallel story with centered worlds replacing worlds, leaving the structure of the theory the same. In both cases, the representation of a belief state and the content described are abstracted from the believer. But the lesson, I think, of the phenomenon of essentially de say or self-locating or indexical belief is that we cannot give an adequate representation of a state of belief without connecting the world as the subject takes it to be with the subject who takes it to be that way. What we want to represent is, this, uh, is the state of belief that a particular individual X has at a particular time T in a particular possible world. When we represent the way the individual locates himself in the world as he takes it to be, we need to include the information about who it is who is locating himself there. And we need to link the world as the believer takes it to be to the world in which the believer takes the world to be that way. So I'm going to use, in sort of this informal 
pictorial sort of way of, of sketching this, this account uses what I'll call a set of labeled or indexed possible worlds to represent a state of belief, which are really just centered worlds thought of in a little different uh, way. Um, so the idea is that the set of centered worlds is indexed to a particular individual time and world as the source or the base of that, that set of belief, the individual who is in that belief state at that time. Okay, so uh, another one of these pictures, and this one's outlined. This is a possible world with four guys in it this time, and we circle it in red because this is the actual world. And we light one of the guys up, Mr. Green, and uh, we light him up not because uh, he locates himself there, but because this is the guy whose beliefs we want to represent. And if we had times, we would indicate a time to, to indicate the time at which he has, has the beliefs. Then, okay, so that's Mr. Green in the actual world. This is the set of possible worlds compatible with Mr. Green's beliefs, those doxastic alternatives uh, for him. And then we light up those uh, to indicate where it is that Mr. Green locates himself in the world and link that to the guy who has, uh, has the beliefs. Um, now, this then is the kind of answer we want to give to the second question. How do we represent overall a state of belief? The uh, representation of a state of belief as a whole is a pair consisting of a centered world and a set of centered worlds. And that can all be um, represented in a sort of using kind of standard machinery of uh, sort of cryptic structures with a relation, uh, accessibility relation, but accessibility relation relating centered worlds rather than, than, um, than ordinary worlds. But when it comes to answering question one, what is the content of a self-reporting belief, what content is ascribed when one ascribes uh, content, the answer will be an ordinary proposition, a set of uncentered worlds. By linking the world according to the believer to the world in which the believer has the beliefs, we can represent and compare the beliefs of more than one person. So this is sort of the calibration kind of question. So here is the same world where now we light up two guys in the actual world, Mr. Green and Mr. Brown, and link each one of them to a set of centered worlds. But uh, we can see that Mr. Brown and Mr. Green disagree because there's no overlap uh, between the worlds, um, uh, the uncentered worlds that are uh, in w at which these two individuals are locating themselves. Alternatively, uh, the picture might have been this with overlap, uh, which, would, which would imply that Mr. Brown and Mr. Green, while they have different beliefs, they know or believe different things, their beliefs are compatible, at least in one possible world. And in the compatible possible worlds, we'll have two uh, guys lit up, one linked to Mr. Green and one linked to Mr. Brown. Uh, but it's in a sort of an assumption of the theory that the worlds themselves uh, are distinct. Uh, um, we, we never have the same world um, uh, with, with different centers in it linked to a, a single uh, believer. Um, and uh, um, this uh, feature is crucial for the representation of communication of self-locating information, which is difficult to make sense of on a model that uses sets of centered worlds themselves simply to represent information. We want 
For example, to connect the belief Alice expresses when she tells Bert that she is Alice with what Bert comes to believe when he accepts what she said. When we represent iterated and shared beliefs, I should um, uh, also make the point we represent iterated belief uh, since we can now light up Mr. Brown in one of the worlds compatible with Mr. Green's beliefs and ask what in that world, not in the actual world, but in that world was Mr. Brown believed and link a belief set to him. And this then represents uh, that it's compatible with what Mr. Green believes, that Mr. Brown believes, um, that Mr. Green is happy, say. Um, uh, um, so, um, again, the, the sort of simple centered world picture doesn't sort of give you any kind of account of, of iterated um, uh, belief. And an iterated belief uh, allows one then to represent um, iterated and shared beliefs together. It gives you an account um, that will allow one to represent a conversational context uh, a set of po- represented by a set of possible worlds that represents the common ground, the presumed mutual beliefs of or common knowledge of the participants in the conversation, and uh, which would be the sort of uh, belief what uh, what Mr. Green believes about what Mr. Brown believes about what Mr. Green believes, and so on. And so, when you have sort of a representation of common ground, so this sort of multiply iterated belief state, uh, you'll have multiple indices. Uh, so if you want the common, the common ground for two people, you'll have a sort of an index for each, which is not only where Mr. Uh, Green locates himself uh, in the worlds compatible with his beliefs and the worlds uh, compatible with the common ground, but where Mr. Uh, Brown and Mr. Green locate themselves. So we now have sort of a, uh, a representation that gives us uh, not only an I, a thing to link the I to in the possible worlds, but also a U. The you when we have Mr. Green talking to Mr. Brown in a context of this kind. Um, so um, the common ground will be the context representing not only what the participants presume the world to be like, but also where they locate themselves and each other uh, in, in the world. So you might have two amnesiacs talking to each other. Uh, neither one knows who he himself is or perhaps who the other one is either. Uh, but they uh, nevertheless have a kind of, they can calibrate their beliefs with each other because they'll have sort of a common way of, of uh, locating themselves mutually if they are in a conversation together. Now, for those who aren't satisfied with color-coded pictures and dotted lines and waving of hands uh, of this kind, um, I, as people have pressed me on various occasions to spell this out a little more, so I... I sketched in the notes that were, were handed out a more uh, slightly, um, or at least the, sort of some of the basic ideas of a more systematic uh, uh, theory where some interesting questions uh, come up. And this, um, um, some, some of them are discussed, but there are further complications and issues that one might, uh, one might explore. Uh, this model, this theory, uses the same resources as the Lewis theory, centered worlds, and they are related by a doxastic accessibility relation as, a sta- as in a standard Kripke model for a logic of knowledge or belief of the kind first developed by Jakob Hintika. In a Hintika-style theory, there's an accessibility relation for each subject when you want to represent multiple, multiple knowers or believers. Uh, a lot of development of, of um, 
of uh, theories of multiple knowledge uh, and, and belief in that uh, framework. So uh, a separate accessibility relation for each subject. Uh, time generally doesn't come into it, but if it does, uh, you have a separate accessibility relation for each time. In our theory, the subject and time are built into the relata rather than the relation. So we have a single doxastic accessibility relation where the, state, the, the believer uh, whose beliefs are being modeled and the time are, are in the uh, in the relata, which define the centered worlds. Um, this provides the resources to compare the attitudes of different agents, even when the beliefs are self-locating, and the same agent at different times. And these are resources that are absent both from the classical models and from Lewis's modification of them. So the possible worlds in various belief states are labeled by the time of belief, but we can still represent the way beliefs persist and change since we can compare in context beliefs of a person at different times, just as we can compare the beliefs of different persons. Um, so when beliefs persist or are updated, a thinker may locate herself at a past time as well as in the present by memory. And the same possible worlds that are compatible with a believer's belief at one time may still be compatible with them at a later time with the labels shifted forward within the same um, world. So uh, just to use an old example, we'll consider O'Leary who managed to lock himself in the trunk of his car. I guess I should say the boot of his car since I'm here. My Americanism is here. Um, and is wondering as he hears the clock toll um, whether it's maybe he doesn't quite count the, the tolls. He's not sure whether it's 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock. Now, there are two relevantly different alternative possible worlds compatible uh, with his, his beliefs. Um, uh, a world in which um, he's thinking that thought at three and a world in which he's thinking it at four. Uh, now, it might well be, to give it the kind of, a kind of example that I discussed before where you where you have the same events taking place within the world, it could very well be that he knows that he wakes up at both times, both three and four, but doesn't remember at four, the three o'clock waking. So there's another waking. Well, first of all, let's draw the line between them here. But uh, there's another waking that takes place at four uh, in the three o'clock world and another one that takes place at three at the four o'clock uh, uh, world. But we assume that they are different possible worlds rather than different centers within the same world. Even if O'Leary actually woke up and thought the things, the thoughts both times, there's still only one time in the actual world at which each particular token thought occurred. Now, let's suppose uh, O'Leary's rescued in the morning, and so at 8 a.m., he is still, um, he remembers one of the nighttime wakings, not the other one, he remembers one of them, and thinks, I still wonder what time it was then. Okay, so 8 a.m. Now uh, we no longer uh, are at, at 3 or 4, we're at 8. So that's the center now of, of the representation of O'Leary's beliefs at this later time, but it's the same worlds. So he's remembering and he's, he's wondering now, the same two worlds are compatible with his belief, he's wondering, was it 3 or 4 o'clock then? And because it would be a, a fact uh, that he is a causal fact. That is one of those uh, events that he's remembering and not the other. Um, 
Okay, so the then picks out a particular time in the actual world, the time that the now picked out at the earlier time that is being remembered. Okay, so we get a representation of sort of persistence of, uh, of belief in ignorance in this case. Now, to bring out um, um, how the framework I'm sketching compares and contrasts with Lewis's centered world, a kind of sort of this idea of calibration, uh, I want to um, look at a notorious example that's come in for a lot of recent discussion in the literature. Uh, involving self-location and change of belief over time, and this is the case of Sleeping Beauty. So I'm going to. Uh, some people will be uh, familiar with this little uh, story, um, but I'll sort of sketch the uh, the rough idea and then see how it, how it goes. So here's the scenario: Sleeping Beauty. Uh, again, people are always performing these diabolical experiments on women, I don't know, but um, Sleeping Beauty is to be put to sleep on Sunday night after being told that she will be waked up either once or twice in the next two days. And whether it's once or twice will depend on the flip of a fair coin. So if the coin lands hand, the coin will be flipped maybe after the first waking. It doesn't really matter. If the coin lands heads, then she will be waked up only once on Monday. Won't be waked up again on Tuesday. If the coin lands tails, then she will be waked up on Monday and again on Tuesday. But only on the Tuesday waking, if it occurs, will uh, happen only after she's been given a drug that ensures that she will have no memory of the Monday waking. The question is, so here she's uh, either... um, she, she definitely gets waked up on Monday morning, and then she goes back to sleep. And then if the coin comes up uh, tails, she's waked up. She's given the amnesia-inducing drug and waked up again on Tuesday uh, morning. But when she wakes up, she doesn't know whether it's Monday or Tuesday. Uh, the question is, to what degree should Sleeping Beauty believe, upon being waked up on Monday morning, that the coin landed heads? So she's waked up, and you say, okay... You know, what do you think about the coin? The coin hasn't been flipped yet on Monday morning, but she's out. What do you think? Um, what's your degree of belief that the coin will, uh, will land or did land? You don't know whether it's did or will, because you don't know whether it's Monday or Tuesday. Degree of belief that the coin uh, will be heads. Adam Elga, in his, who first sort of leashed this uh, puzzle uh, into the, in the literature, although it, it comes from stuff in economics, game theory literature, my variations from that, um, uh, gave a very concise and elegant defense of the answer one-third. That's you should believe to degree one-third that the coin will land heads and two-thirds that it will land tails. David Lewis argued against this, uh, this uh, view, argued that the, ra- the degree of belief that a rational person should have when you wake up on Monday is one-half, the same as they had on Sunday. Now, the argument between Elga and Lewis uh, was carried in analysis, uh, was carried out within the centered world picture for representing self-locating belief. And I think there are some presuppositions that those they shared in that debate um, that should be questioned. So my view is that Elga got the right answer uh, and Lewis got the wrong answer, but I have some problems with some of the principles that he used in the defense of it. So I'm going to set the problem up in a slightly different way. 
So I want to begin by describing Sleeping Beauty's epistemic situation when she wakes up on Monday. Okay, so again, we'll have a sort of space of possibilities here, which we're going to divide up, and there are three relevantly different possibilities. Um, so again, I say, I'm the theorist. I say she wakes up on Monday. That's the actual world we're modeling, but she doesn't know that. So we want to represent the doxastic possibilities for her, the epistemic possibilities for her. Okay, there are going to be three relevantly different possible situations. Uh, well, and there are two, day, two relevant days to start with within each. Uh, call the first one S1, and it's a situation in which the coin land, again, this is a whole possible world we're describing now, even though we're going to locate someone at a time within that world. Um, uh, the coin will land heads, and uh, it's Monday. And that's what, today is Monday. So that, this is the actual situation as I, as I described it. Second doxastic possibility or epistemic possibility for Sleeping Beauty when she wakes up is that the coin lands tails and that today is Monday. And third uh, epistemic possibility is that, um, that uh, the coin landed tails and today is uh, Tuesday. And then we sort of link these as the sort of time at which she locates himself, herself in each of the possible worlds compatible with her beliefs. But still, there are distinct, uncentered possible worlds with a location within them. Um, so uh, Sleeping Beauty might describe the situation to herself this way. Either today is Monday and the coin will land heads, either to, or today is Monday and the coin will land tails, or today is Tuesday and the coin has already been flipped and it landed tails. Uh, so this is uh, descriptions giving all the relevant information about these three possible states of the word, world viewed from a certain perspective. The perspective is essential to the description of the world, but not to the state of the world described. So we as theorists are, can sort of view these worlds objectively. Um, uh, in two of these possible states of the world, there's a similar event um, taking place either the day before or the day after, but it's not this one. Okay, so if the coin lands tails, then if we're in situation S2, uh, then she'll be waked up tomorrow, and if we're in situation S3, she was waked up yesterday, but she doesn't remember. And um, uh, the corresponding time in S1 uh, is a... Uh, an open circle because it's a different kind of kind of event. She knows um, that, that that's different. Right? And, uh, okay, so now um, we can uh, um, use these. Uh, um, okay, wait a second. Um, there's a fourth possible state of the world that is not compatible with Sleeping Beauty's knowledge on Monday but that she might describe from her perspective, the perspective we're considering, by means of two suppositions, one of which is counterfactual and the other of which is not. So here's the way you think of Sleeping Beauty, again, her perspective. She's thinking, suppose that today is in fact Tuesday. That is, in effect, she's saying, suppose we're in situation S3. But suppose, and this is the counterfactual part, a sort of further supposition now, suppose that instead of coming up tails, the coin had landed heads. 
I know this is not the actual situation. I can, it's not compatible with my beliefs. Because if it were, I would not have been waked up. And I was. Now, even if it's in fact Monday, as we're supposing, uh, Sydney Beauty can still sort of describe and characterize this fourth possible situation, which we'll call S4. Um, and it's the situation where the coin lands heads. And today is Tuesday. And the situation which she excludes. And so again, we, we have the open red circle to represent that. And uh, link the... Uh, link the world uh, to, to the ones, even though it's not compatible with the belief. So there's sort of a counterfactual extension of her linking of her epistemic possibilities. And um, uh, another event of the kind uh, that uh, it, uh, took place at a different time than now took place in world S, S4, state, world state S4. Um, okay, now... Um, the relevance of this fourth possible state to Sleeping Beauty's epistemic situation is that while she on Monday is in a position to rule it out, she knows that on Sunday she was not in a position to rule it out. Of course, on Sunday she was not in a position to characterize any of these possible situations by fixing the reference of a day in the way she does fix it on Monday, namely as today, uh, or the day in which this thought is being entertained. But we can still use these four possibilities to characterize Sleeping Beauty's prior state of knowledge, her epistemic situation on Sunday, doing it in a way that is relevant to connecting her knowledge on Sunday with her knowledge on Monday. Specifically, we can say what information it is that Sleeping Beauty acquires when she wakes up on Monday, what possibility that was previously compatible with her knowledge is now incompatible with it. So on Sunday... Um, uh, well, let me say, I just um, connect these just to emphasize the symmetry um, of, of, the, of the situation. Now, Elga claimed um, in his uh, argument about Sleeping Beauty that Sleeping Beauty receives no new information on being waked up on Monday, so that her rational change of belief from one-half to one-third, which is what he argues for, that she starts off believing the uh, there's a 50% chance the coin will end heads and winds up with a one-third chance. Um, was a change in this change of belief was a change induced by something other than new information. Elga claimed this because he identified new information with objective information, and in a centered world's framework that he was using, Sleeping Beauty learns nothing about what the world is like in itself. This surprising rational belief change without new information. Uh, was the main reason David Lewis, who accepted this sort of analysis um, of the, of the uh, basic problem, but the reason why he resisted Elga's conclusion and wanted to say, since he learned something new, his degree of belief must remain one half. According to Lewis, since Sleeping Beauty receives no information, uh, she has to uh, continue believing the same thing. Elga also notes that on his analysis, we have a counterexample to a reflection principle defended by um, Boss uh, von Frost and the various versions of reflection principles, but they run into trouble in these self-locating cases. So any agent who is certain that she will tomorrow have credence X uh, uh, in, that should be proposition R, though she will neither receive nor 
new information nor suffer any cognitive mishap in the intervening time ought now to have credence X in R. So you know that tomorrow your belief will be so-and-so that you will not um, uh, either gain any new information or, um, 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 say, be drunk or forget or something like that, then uh, you ought to update your beliefs right now. Um, but uh, on our account, Sleeping Beauty does receive new information, so there's no violation of the reflection principle. Though there remains a problem with some formulations of such principles, since Sleeping Beauty knows on Sunday that on Monday she will receive that information, and one might be tempted to think that therefore she already has it. But does Sleeping Beauty really learn something? Does she really rule out a possibility previously compatible with her knowledge, simply by being waked up on Monday? something she knew in advance would happen. Well, suppose Beauty were accompanied on her adventures by her best friend, Sleeping Ugly. He, let us suppose, will be waked up, put to sleep, and given the same amnesia-inducing, amnesia-inducing drug as Sleeping Beauty, but Sleeping Ugly will be waked up on Tuesday, as well as on Monday, whatever happens with the coin. And he will observe each time whether or not she is awake. Surely Sleeping Ugly learns something new. Upon being waked up on Monday, he looks over and sees the Sleeping Beauty was also awakened. Does he learn anything that she does not learn? If we allow him to tell her what he has learned, assuming she's awake, is there anything he can tell her when they both wake up that she does not already know? Obviously not, so she learns it too. All right. Now... Now, back to our our picture, Uh, let's change perspectives. Let's now consider, given these possible worlds we've defined in terms of the Monday perspective, let's consider uh, the Sunday uh, perspective. Um, How should Sleeping Beauty's degrees of credence uh, be allocated on Sunday? To the four, I should say, let's link those. That's now the, the, uh, the epistemic situation we're talking about is her Sunday situation. And now the full symmetry of the Monday-Tuesday situation comes out because there's no longer any special status to, to, to those. Although we can still say S1 is the actual world. Um, how should uh, Sleeping Beauty allocate her credence, her degrees of belief, on Sunday? Well... Since she knows the coin is fair, uh, she should obviously, um, well, let me just label here the, um, the Monday and Tuesday worlds, a, uh, the two perspectives, the A perspective and the B perspective. Okay, it's the same picture then. Um, um, so how should she allocate her credence as well? Since she knows the coin is fair and it's Sunday, everybody agrees she should divide her credence values equally between the heads worlds, S1 and S4, and the tails worlds, um, um, uh, uh, S2 and S3. And furthermore, it seems clear that her degree of belief conditional on the day in question being Monday should also be evenly divided between the H and the T worlds. So S1 gets the same credence as S2. That's the first assumption. Um, furthermore, uh, let's see. But how, the, question, the further question then is, how should her credence values be divided between the Tuesday worlds and the Monday worlds? 
And the uh, assumption I want to defend is that her degree of belief in S1 in... Uh, um, no, that's, um, that's the second assumption. The third assumption is that the... Um, uh, that S2 and S3 should have the same uh, same value. So that's what I want to now uh, argue for. Now, Elga asks an analogous question in his defense of, of the one-third uh, answer. Uh, and um, um, I'm going to agree, but uh, object to his argument for it. Elga's argument turned on a restricted principle of indifference that has application only in the context of the centered world's framework. His principle says, Elga's principle of difference says, that alternative predicaments within the same objective possible world should receive equal probability. That is, credence must be divided equally between epistemic alternatives represented by different centered worlds, where uh, there was a difference in the center, but not in the world. And, of course, that's what we've excluded altogether from our, our account. Uh, Alga was applying this principle, and Lewis endorsed this principle as well, to Sleeping Beauty's epistemic situation after she woke up on Monday. Okay, so this is Alga's restricted principle of, of indifference. Um, and whereas we're considering what her degrees of belief should be on Sunday. And in any case, Alga's principle can have no role in my argument, since I've rejected the analysis that treats two actual situations as epistemic alternatives. I want to allow the Monday wake, that the Monday waking could have occurred on Tuesday and does occur on Tuesday in another possible world. But the actual Tuesday waking, should it occur, will be a different event. Still, there's a close connection between my question, how should Sleeping Beauty's credence on Sunday be divided between the Monday tales and the Tuesday tales worlds, and the question to which Elga's restricted principle and the difference provides an answer. How should she, on waking up, divide her credence between the Monday tales and the Tuesday tales worlds. Um, um, okay, I also want to defend a kind of principle of indifference to answer my question, but it has a different motivation um, and a significance. So this is back to the, the picture here. The reason that Sleeping Beauty on Sunday must assign equal credence to the Monday world and the Tuesday world is that she lacks the conceptual resources to distinguish them. Let me try to make a point with an analogy. Suppose I give you the following problem. A pair of dice is purchased at a novel. Uh, so there's a store, Hoyle, says games, uh, puzzles, magic across the street from Queens, uh, Queens College. I thought this is where these dice came from. Uh, you get a pair of dice that came from there, and I ask you the following hypothetical question. I said, um, these dice are going to be tossed. And uh, uh, you're told the dice have the normal six faces with the numbers one through six, but it's not stipulated that there are, they are fair dice. Uh, they might be loaded. So it's compatible with what you are told that the dice are biased, four or against six, or that one is biased for six and the other against. Now I ask you, on the condition that a particular one of the dice, call it die A, lands six up, what is your degree of credence in the proposition that the other one, die B, also lands six up? Um, however you answer this question, I now ask you the following follow-up question. 
Suppose instead the condition had been that it was die B rather than die A that landed six up. What's your degree of credence on this condition that die A as well landed six up? My principle of indifference doesn't tell you what answer to give to the first question, since rationality doesn't forbid you to have opinions about the distribution of loaded dice in such experiments, or about whether pairs of dice of this kind tend to be biased in the same or in opposite ways. But it does require that you answer the two questions the same way. And the reason is that they are really the same question. The labels A and B were the theorists' labels, and any situation in which two dice were tossed could equally well have been described with the labels permuted. So, um, 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 I still, despite the fact that I could have permuted the labels, I still needed the labels to ask my question, since it's essential to the problem to distinguish the condition that one of the two, at least one of the two dice landed six up, from the condition that a particular one of them, it doesn't matter which, landed six up. And you get, if you do the calculation with fair dice, you'll see you get quite a different answer on those two questions. Now, my limited principle of indifference applies to you in the dice case when I posed the problem the way I did, but not if I had asked it about two particular dice that could be distinguished in some way. If, for example, the dice had been present, we could have distinguished the condition that this one landed six from the condition that that one did. And even if they're hard to tell apart, Reason won't require that you treat the cases alike in your belief. You might have just a hunch, and that's okay. Now, I think Sleeping Beauty's situation on Sunday is like this with respect to the characterization of the possible worlds used to represent her Sunday beliefs. Sleeping Beauty might have characterized the space of possibilities on Sunday this way. There are two relevant days on which waking might, for all I know, take place. Call them day A and day B. Um, and then when the time comes, I can say this one is day, let's let this one be done, uh, day A. Um, but um, from the Sunday point of view, there's nothing different between A and B, and you could switch S1 and S4, S2 and S3, and A and B, and just have an alternative description of the same problem, or the same, uh, same representation. Um, uh, and so this is the reason why these two things have to get the same value. Now, just as with the dice case, our indifference principle is quite fragile. Once the day comes, we can't rule out the reasonableness of a hunch that maybe, maybe today's probably Tuesday, I think. Perhaps a dog barks in the distance or doesn't. One feels slightly more or less tired than usual. The bedsheets are rumpled in a certain way, and one judges that these particular circumstances are slightly more likely to occur on a Tuesday. The indifference principle carries over to the time of the waking only with the help of a reasonable stipulation, which is made explicitly in some versions of the problem or implicitly in others in describing the problem, and that is that the only relevant evidence that Sleeping Beauty receives on waking up is that she wakes up. Anything else she learns is not taken by her to be relevant. Given this stipulation, our analysis yields the, de the definite result that is from these, these three uh, assumptions, it follows uh, that once you've excluded S4, that the degree of belief in heads is one-third. Okay, i um, talked too long here, but I want to just leave you with one 
small further twist to help bring out the complex relationship between the external representation, as a given here, of a subject's epistemic situation and the representation or thinking of this from the subject's point of view, because we've sort of been going back and forth between uh, saying here's, here's the story told from our perspective and here's the way it appears or seems to Sleeping Beauty. Uh, so I'll just describe the twist and leave it you to think about how to understand it. Consider what happens to Sleeping Beauty when she wakes up on, um, uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday morning, the experiment is over. Let's suppose the amnesia-inducing drug is still in effect, assuming it was administered at all, which would have been only if the coin had landed tails. So Sleeping Beauty remembers exactly one waking, no matter what, which is the most recent one, or the only one, if the coin landed heads. And suppose Sleeping Beauty knows from the beginning that this is what's going to happen in the end. So, okay, so now this is our, our, our perspective, and this is her memory of the earlier um, time. So um, if uh, S1 is the actual world, it's waking A that she remembers. If a dog barked on Monday, she will remember that a dog barked. Now, on Monday, Sleeping Beauty did not know it was Monday, and so did not know whether she was in states S1, S2, or S3, but on Wednesday, she can eliminate S2 because she doesn't remember. Um, uh, she would not have remembered the event that she in fact remembers if she had been in situation S3. So her Wednesday belief state is obtained by eliminating S2, leaving just S1 and S3 with equal credence. We get the intuitively right result that on Wednesday her degree of belief that the coin landed heads is back to one half. But this is right, but there's something further puzzling about this. For according to this analysis, Sleeping Beauty knows throughout on Monday, on Tuesday, should she be waked up then, and on Wednesday, that on Wednesday she will wake up reasonably believing to degree one-half that the coin landed heads. Furthermore, she knows that on Wednesday she will know more than she knew, either on Sunday or on Monday or Tuesday. So how can it be reasonable for her to have a belief different from this in the intermediate epistemic situation? Um, this situation is more convoluted than the original case, but I think, um, um, I think there's, there's still no real violation of a reasonable uh, uh, reflection uh, principle. Uh, okay, next week, um, this has been a, I want to, uh, I want to use some of the, uh, some of the, some of the, Sort of ideas about um, the differences in perspective uh, and the different way of the way in which perspective comes into the representation of, of uh, self-locating belief to see if we can uh, we, we can uh, throw some light on on the story uh, about uh, about Mary. Thanks.